Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today I'm honored to have as a uh, guest today, our longtime collaborator and researcher, Wendell Cox, who runs an organization called Demographio, which maintains the largest private database on housing affordability in the world. Wendell and Joel just published a new report on housing called Blame Ourselves, Not Our Stars, where the premise is that the big problem we have in the housing world is a series of missteps that came from government policy that reacted to uh, our revulsion at at suburban sprawl. Uh, Wendell, do you want to walk us through what happened and why we are where we are? Yeah, I'd be happy to. If you go back to 1969, which was the year, by the way, that I think our, the, the California housing laws uh, really began. At, at that time, California housing was about as affordable as the rest of the country in, in relation to incomes. And, um, you know, having a price to income ratio or median multiple of about three or less in all of the metropolitan areas, all the major metropolitan areas, And over the period since that time, we've had just an incredible increase in regulation. There was CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act. There were all sorts of growth control measures in the Bay Area in the 80s and the 90s. Um, Then it it, it got more uh, serious when urban growth boundaries were adopted in places like Santa Clara County and Alameda County. 2008 really was, was a bad year for housing affordability when Senate Bill 375 was passed to put all sorts of serious limits on the expansion of urban areas and housing on the periphery. And the basic problem is that the policies of California make it almost impossible to build single-family housing, which is the housing that people want, and almost impossible to build on or beyond the urban fringe. And when you draw a, a circle around the urban fringe, which is what these policy do policies do, you raise the price of land, just like when OPEC raises the price or, or cuts back production, gas prices go up. And the the uh, the increases have been incredible. I mean, at this point, our latest data is showing the San Jose metropolitan area, that Santa Clara and Benito, San Benito County, as having a price to income ratio near 12, not the under three that it had in 1969. So that's, uh, you know, the basics of the problem. Wow. So, so Pave, Pave Paradise put up a parking lot. They took it too seriously, is what you're saying. Exactly. And, and, exactly. and it's important for us to understand, um, and Wendell's done this work, I've done it um, all over the world myself, which is, you know, basically, these policies are being adopted, not everywhere, in most of the United States, as Wendell will, can point out, have not adopted these policies. But in Australia, in the United Kingdom, in Canada, um, and in those parts of the U.S. where these policies have been adopted, the same pattern is there. And what's really ironic is very often they say, well, what we'll do is we'll deal with the cost of housing by building more density. Well, there are several problems there. A, dense housing is more expensive to build. Um, it's not particularly- Which is somewhat well- counterintuitive. Right. It, it, you would think that yes. it's to be putting up more housing units on a smaller 
footprint that it would be somehow cheaper. But what you're saying, it is not. It's, it's not. And there's been pretty extensive research on this. And, you know, most people who are, you know, whatever, whatever their position is, they're going to, you know, more or less say this. It is expensive per unit to build. Um, and of course, the other the other problem is this no this notion that that um, uh, that you can solve the housing problem by density also basically you know gives up on the possibility of home ownership. Um, home ownership for all the Anglo-Saxon countries, all the countries that are you know even the United States, which is more or less an offshoot of, of Great Britain in a historic sense. All these countries have the exact same issue, uh, the exact same problem. Um, its origin started um, in the post-war uh, UK, um, and these these regulations have had a disastrous effect. And one last thing is when you um, restrict development on the fringe, it's not just the fringe that is hurt; it's the city. Because well, let me put it this way: I'm a I'm a real estate speculator. And I know that 80% of all development in the uh, in the Bay Area is going to have to be on four to five percent of the land. If I have that land, I'm really uh, you don't have to be Milton Friedman to figure out that you're going to make a, a lot of money on that. So what you do is you make prices. You know, when people ask why is a new apartment in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Vancouver or Toronto or London three, four thousand dollars for one bedroom. That doesn't seem to be uh, a, a particular um, a cheap alternative. So this is not only a California problem, it's a global problem and is beginning to become a real American problem as well. Well, Wendell, let me, if you don't mind, let's just dive into the weeds a little bit here, because I think our listeners are going to be quite interested in what are the four or five killer policies, the things that we did to shoot ourselves in the foot that get in the way of of the development? How do they restrict it? Well, we there really are two things in California. The, the first, and I think, frankly, the least important, is CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act that gives essentially just about anybody that doesn't like some development that's going to occur in some area of California, the, alter, the, the, the ability to challenge it. And we've seen uh, projects, uh, single-family home projects held up, I think, as much as 30 to 40 years going through this. Well, that makes it impossible. The big issue, though, has to do with the, with the very real restrictions on building single-family housing or any housing on the urban fringe or beyond. Um, and, and that really is it. That is the, the, Those two are the whole story. And is that a state restriction or is that a local government restriction? Both. Uh, we have urban growth boundaries in places like Alameda County and Santa Clara County and so on. But we also have this Sustainable Communities Initiative out of the Senate Bill 375 from 2008 that basically makes it almost impossible to build on the urban fringe. And the whole idea is we're going to take all of California's growth and force it into a, in, into a very limited area. And the price of land goes up so that, for example, where Ed Glazer of Harvard and Joe Giorco of, um, of University of Pennsylvania point out that traditionally land has represented 20% of the cost of a new house. Uh, in San Francisco, it's more like 65% at this point. So it is land that is driving this, the, the cost of land. And that's something that a lot of the reformers who basically see 
municipal zoning reform as the answer missed the boat because they don't understand that what's going on is at the state and regional level, you're forcing up the price of land and whatever you do that improves zoning is only after the impact of these regional and state mandates with respect to the region. I, I also think that there's Marshall, and, and this is fitting into our, our podcast theme closely, is that what we're essentially doing is we're we're consigning the next generation here in California, also in same issues are, are emerging in, you know, in Toronto and Vancouver and other areas that have similar issues. And that is what we're consigning the next generation to a future where they can't possibly ever buy a house and that they're going to be renters for life. And how does that affect us? A, we know, and, you know, Marshall, you've worked on this as well. You know, what we're doing is is, is we're making it very, very difficult for young people um, to ever buy a house. And so what's happening is we're losing, yes, we're losing some rich people, we're losing some poor people, but we're, what's really serious is we're losing people in the middle age, in the in the period where they want to form a family and they and they are um also probably at their economic peak. And we're losing those people. And it, it is very depressing to talk to bright people who, including some of our younger colleagues at Chapman, who would love to stay here want to be in California. I'm a great believer in California myself, but, you know, they can't afford a future here. And we're just, as as Marshall used put it, we're eating our own seed corn. Well, and the other thing is that we, we have kind of misguided notions about social engineering, yeah. that somehow if we tell everybody, look, you know, density is good, go ahead, forget about having your own single family home with a yard in the back. Get a nice condo someplace. You know, you could still be a homeowner, but you're going to have to be in a big, dense, uh, dense uh, apartment complex, basically, that you own instead of rent. Um, you're going to have to like that. Well, it turns out that people actually don't like that. And so we're forcing them into this mold. So wave a wand for me. How do we fix this? Well, the key, and, and Joel and I have uh, recommended this in the paper, the key is to begin to do some reform to get these land costs under control. Now, the Central Valley, and actually I would say from Shasta County, essentially to Imperial County and Interior Counties, um, is more affordable than the rest of the state. It's not as affordable as it should be, but you could save an awful lot of money living in Fresno or Bakersfield or, or Redding. Uh, compared to what it would cost you in the Bay Area or the Los Angeles or, area or Southern California. So what we're recommending is the development of what we call a housing opportunity area that would exempt land in these counties from urban containment regulations and most CEQA regulations and basically restore the kind of market that created the prosperity of California and made it possible for middle class people as late as and households as late as 1969 to afford middle class housing they can't anymore so 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 that uh, i think is the the way you go you start to work on that and in the long run that would mean now when somebody decides you know it's just too expensive to live in San Jose i'm going to move to um, Texas or Nevada now you're going to have an alternative to stay in California. So uh, other than that, the, I mean, the domestic migration situation in California is unbelievable. I don't think we had the data when we wrote the paper, but the, um, 
the out-migration in just two years, net domestic out-migration is almost equal to the population of the city of San Francisco, over 800,000 people. Wow, that's an astounding number. And, and let me, let's let's probe this just a little bit further. Um, one of the things that we have that exists as a trend is this post-pandemic preference for remote work. How do you think that impacts this whole discussion? Well, I think this is a, one of the central things. And, and weirdly enough, the state of California, despite its its supposed commitment to reducing carbon emissions, has shown very little interest in remote work. Um, and you know, continues to suggest that 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 people uh need to you know take the uh emissions spewing commutes five days a week. That's what you know, that seems to be what is preferred. And uh, the reality is that the uh, work at home uh, cat is out of the bag. It's, you know, people have experienced it. Companies realize that maybe, you know, there are certain people that we don't want to lose, but they they don't want to live in a one bedroom condo in, in San Jose. And, you know, they, they, they've gotten a place in, in Davis, California, one of the fast growing places in Yolo County. Um, and maybe the person can come in once a week or when there's a need for him or her to come in. Well, but Joel, does does this kind of imply that we're triaging downtowns? That yeah. we're basically saying, hey, you know, <laughs> let, let them die? Well, no, I think that the, the reality is the more we hold on to the myth that the transactional city based on high-rise office building and the expansion of that sector You've got to get past that, you know. I mean, city you know, city leaders. Uh, I've got to say, okay, what are we going to do as a city? And I've just finished an essay on this, and Wendell and I have dealt with this. There are many things cities can do. I mean, uh, there. First of all, there's always going to be that ten to fifteen percent of the population that wants density. That's been true th- since the fifties and sixties. Well, earlier so, than that, I mean, the whole growth of cities historically has been. Right. People want it. There are some people who like feel comfortable in that density environment. Right. And so and so um, the problem, um, of course, may be that they can't afford to be there. But I mean, there are certain there are certain industries, um, media, finance, which are, you know, always going to have, I think, an orientation to larger cities. So they have a role. And I think the real richness of cities uh, and cities have ignored this are their neighborhoods. You know, if you can live, particularly in a big city like L.A., but even in, let's say, New York or San Francisco, and you can live in a nice neighborhood in Brooklyn or in Noe Valley or or, or Las Vegas, and you can basically stay in that area for most of your time, shop there, go to, you know, uh, you know, work there, that is going to be the key. What we're finding is that, for instance, business in Brooklyn has been doing much better than business in Manhattan because you don't have that constant flow of people coming into the downtown. It's a new world and cities have to find their place in it. I think they can find their place in it, but they're going to have to do something about crime. They're going to have to do something about the homeless and they're going to have to improve the economic environment. Wendell, Wendell, who is doing it right? Who is doing it right? Well, that first of all, where it is being done right, it was never intended. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
I, I mean, people always ask me that question. I'd say, well, what about Kansas City? What about Indianapolis? Here you go to those places. You don't find any of these regulations. What we need is government to get out of the way. Government does not have the answer. I mean, you look at the United Kingdom, where, where houses were, were, were costing two to three times incomes after the war, and they imposed this, this incredibly dysfunctional urban planning model that has now swept the world, and housing, and, and housing is eight times incomes now in London. It's unbelievable. And so, so, so we have to understand planning is not the way to go. The way to go is to allow the market to operate. You need regulation. There's nothing wrong with reasonable regulation, but reasonable regulation does not basically say you can't build in the next lot because it's outside this land that some bureaucrat has set. Well, and I also think that, you know, I, you know, uh, Marshall, you, you asked a good question about models. Well, I, I know Californians are not ever supposed to say anything nice about Texans or about Texas, but, you know, um, I've spent a lot of time in the, particularly in the Houston area, uh, but also in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And they're building communities that are environmentally sustainable, have lots of open space, where they're counting on a large proportion of the of the population working at home. They're building town centers. Um, and what's happened is these kind of developments, which, by the way, we in California pioneered. We built Irvine. We built Valencia. We built Forster City. We we have shown that we are capable of building uh, very sustainable, um, and I mean sustainable, both environmentally and for human beings. Um, we've, we know how to do it. The regulations that Wendell's referring to make it virtually impossible. Think about this. How do I build a, an Irvine in a, in a situation where I cannot guarantee the single-family homeowner that somebody's not going to put an apartment next to them. Um, how am I going to ever get anything approved? And that's why what I find interesting is I talk sometimes to, to sort of funny in some ways. You talk to developers in Texas, and half of them are from California. So a lot of them still live in California because I'll be the first one to say if I have a choice between living in California and living in Texas, and if I could afford both. I'm going to live in California because it's a nicer it's a nicer place. You know, it strikes me that the core of the argument that you have here is that we have the land. It's not a question of we ha we're not Singapore, right? We have to we we are completely limited by the amount of land we have. We have the land, and when we use the land for expansion, take Orange County as an example. We seem to do it pretty responsibly, right? We, we are we are able to put in those regulations that avoid the the Joni Mitchell, you know, put up a parking lot problem. Um, is that true? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. So, um, how what do you say to the environmentalists? Well, well I think I think you. My, my sense is you have to step back and ask what it is you're trying to do, okay? Now, these laws are in, and regulations are largely intended to um, uh, address the problem of urban sprawl. Recognize that in California, 95% of the land is not developed. The cities only cover 5% of the land. So not sure urban sprawl is so big a deal. 
my view is we are when when we adopt these kinds of, of policies, we are basically saying to low income people, you don't matter. Much more important, you know, poverty, uh, in my view, is far worse than urban sprawl. And we have allowed the planners to to basically create a situation in which the cardinal sin is urban sprawl. And we're quite happy. They don't say it, but they're quite happy to consign all sorts of people to poverty. And that's what's happening. Yeah, there, there's some great work. And we've had her on the show uh, that Jennifer Hernandez has done, you know, which she calls the, the green Jim Crow, where, you know, what we decide is, well, we're going to reduce climate change by density, which is itself uh, not necessarily a, 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 something that's actually particularly accurate. But anyway, you can make that argument. But what's happening is for an entire generation of young Californians and particularly Californians um, from historically disadvantaged groups like Latinos and, and African-Americans, they their home ownership rates are considerably lower in California. And many of them will never get get move up. You know, we, we forget that even though there were there were bad restrictions on 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 race, for instance, in where people could live, including also uh, restrictions on uh, my own ethnic group. Um, the fact is, people did manage to buy houses. Much of South LA was filled with, you know, hardworking African American families who who could afford a, a a little bungalow in in South LA. Now, you know, you you could look down on it, but I'll tell you one thing: it's a hell of a lot better than living in in the South Bronx where I was recently. Um, you know, I just think that that. What we what we're doing is a social engineering which is negative in terms of its impact on the class structure, and um, and is essentially consigning people uh, to make a choice between permanent serfdom or leaving California. I don't think that th that is a uh, responsible choice for us to be offering. So your main point here is that. Dictating density leads to poverty. It drives poverty. Yeah. And I don't think that that connection is really there in people's minds, right? I think people are still in this, oh, my God, the planet is about to fall apart. And so we <laughs> need to do whatever it is that it, we can we can do to, to save the planet. And so the old, you know, um, uh, Joni Mitchell line of pave paradise, put up a parking lot, still rings true in people's minds, even though it's not at all true. And of course, a great irony to me, which I get a great kick out of, is I once spoke to a League, a League of Conservation Voters group, and they were ranting and raving about sprawl. And I said, by the way, where do you guys live? And of course, every single one had at least one house, usually in suburbia. Um, you know, somehow it's okay for them. But for, you know, you know, for Mr. Garcia, who's been working his ass off and wants to buy a little house in Riverside... Somehow that's that's a crime against the planet and humanity. And so the, the hypocrisy of being told you have to live a a, 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 a life that's more like what our grandparents uh, endured. So, but meanwhile, the environmentalists who are have a lot of people with a lot of money, you know, they fly around the country. They 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 fly around the world. They have numerous homes. And and they don't exactly live small. Yeah, and I'd love love to just as we move into kind of the final portion of this, Wendell, you are a transportation expert. You've been on the board of uh, the L.A. Um, uh, Metro. 
the it strikes me that when you think about the old urban sprawl argument, basically people said, well, we don't want to push things out into the periphery because we don't want to have to have gigantic commuting problems of people having to go from their remote location into whatever the downtown is. And it strikes me that that entire paradigm of commuting is now completely upended. Is that true? And and kind of how will this remote work trend affect the whole transportation policy? Well, first of all, recognize it's, it's important to recognize that what you're saying occurred was first identified in the 2000 census over 20 years ago, that in fact, uh, downtowns are not that important in terms of employment. No, you know, the majority of people who live in Irvine or in, or, or in Fullerton, the majority of them do not go to downtown Los Angeles. Um, the majority of people who live in, uh, in Livermore don't go to, South, uh, to, to, to San Francisco. And, and the, the remote work phenomenon only uh, makes that more. Uh, but the point is that, uh, that transit, which, by the way, I was a great advocate of in my days on the L.A. County Transportation Commission, transit doesn't have it. And by that, I mean, you go to any major U.S. metropolitan area and you ask, well, now, just how many jobs can I get to in 30 minutes by transit? And how many jobs can I get to by car? Now, in New York, in the New York metropolitan area, you can get to five times as many jobs by car in 30 minutes as you can on transit. And that's as good as it gets. The average among the 56 metropolitan areas that are more than a million is something like 60 times. And so the, the problem is transit makes an awful lot of sense to downtown. But with downtown becoming less important, and my own view is you're not going to ever see uh, some of these downtowns uh, restored to their former glory, as it were. Um, We have less need for transit to downtown. And if you work anywhere but downtown, you really can't use transit. Well, you know, it just strikes me that we're seeing a complete shift because of this remote work trend in the fundamental underlying assumptions, not only is the lack of of, uh, single-family housing driving poverty, but the assumption that um, somehow urban sprawl will, or suburban sprawl sprawl will continue because of commute times is also completely completely, uh, overturned. And a lot of this comes from your research, the two of you, so I applaud you in that. The report is uh, blame ourselves, not our stars, which is available for anybody to download on the Center for Demographics and Policy site at Chapman University. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being part of the Feudal Future podcast. Thank you. Thanks. The Feudal Future.